This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Mark McNally, professor of history in the Department of History at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Dr. McNally is the author most recently of Like No Other, Exceptionalism and Nativism in Early Modern Japan, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2016. Dr. McNally, thank you for talking with me today. It's nice to be here. Thank you. You published this book recently, like no other, about nativism and exceptionalism in early modern Japan. And when we think about the Meiji period, we often get these narratives of Japan opening to the West and the kind of embracing of Western culture. But it sounds like that wasn't quite the case beforehand. In fact, there was a lot of anti-Western thought and nativism during the early modern period. Could you talk about how that transition happens and why it happens so quickly? Uh, well, I think this opening up to the West, I, I actually think of as pre-Meiji, actually. I think of it as, well, I mean, they were, they were forced to open up by the Americans, right, in 1853 and then the treaty in 1854. And there were people who obviously were opposed to the idea that Europeans and Americans would uh, be actually landing in Japan and taking up residence, and they wanted to uh, expel them from their country, and and put simply, that's what I refer to as nativism. But there were also other people who actually welcomed them for either of two reasons: either because they wanted to expel Westerners from Japan by using their technology, their military technology, and then kicking them out at some point in the future. Uh, and these were the ones that I focused on, in particular, in in the book that came out a couple of years ago. And then there were other people who actually liked having them in Japan because they were, you know, genuinely, I would say, cosmopolitan in their outlook. And, and I think both of those strains, so there's immediate nativism, right, which is get rid of them now. Uh, this is the 1850s and 1860s. Then there's the deferred nativism, right, where we want them out, but uh, we can't kick them out, at least not uh, militarily right now, but we want to be able to do this down the road. And I think a lot of these these kaikoku, right, these open-the-country people were, were like that, you know, like Sakuma Shozan, who's featured very prominently in, that, in, the, in the book. And then there you have the, the cosmopolitan ones who, I, I don't know if this is a large group of people, but there were certainly people who, you know, thought of the Westerners as human beings, just like, you know, anyone in Japan. And, and, and I think these people probably came from the ranks of, of these, you know, rangaku scholars, right, these these scholars who advocated, you know, learning Western science and technology, especially medicine, who were the ones that had to kind of grapple with this issue of if their medicine works, how bad could they possibly be, you know, morally speaking, right? Because morality, that was the whole issue for the, the Confucians, right? For the Confucians, it's, look, they, they are not Confucians like we are. They can't possibly be moral people the way we are. And these Dangaku people, these, these uh, Western-trained physicians, many of them, um, I think, uh, opposed that line of thinking. And I'm talking about, you know, like, uh, you know, Sugita Genpaku, for example. And Sugita Genpaku is before Perry, right? So even you, you still have, and Sugita Genpaku had his own students, and I think he kind of transmitted this, this kind of cosmopolitanism to his students. I was reading uh, more recently about Ueda Akinari, and Ueda Akinari, of course, is this kokugaku guy. And, you know, he was active at the end of the 18th century, first couple of, de- well, he dies in 1809. So primarily in the, at the end of the 18th century. 
And, you know, and he was a, of a very similar mindset, you know, the, the Westerners and the, the, the Chinese, the, the Koreans, you know, they're like us. And he, he was genuinely puzzled by all this kind of anti-foreign rhetoric that he was hearing from Motori Norinaga. And he had this very famous debate with Norinaga in the 1780s. And, you know, he said, you know, he, he just kind of dismissed Norinaga. He's a, he's a kook. <laughs> he said, Norinaga, you know, he's this, he's this kooky guy that lives in Issei. Don't listen to him. I'm this, this uh, sophisticated Osaka guy, you know, and I have lots of friends who are, you know, sort of urban, sophisticated people like I am. And we don't know what this guy is talking about. He's preaching all this anti-Chinese, anti-foreign stuff, and, and we're not buying it. At the same time, then, then we get, you know, the, these famous examples, like 1825, Aizawa Seishisai has right. his Shinron, the new theses, right. which is very anti-Western. And then, of course, mm-hmm. in the immediate years leading up to the Restoration, there is this whole discourse of son no joy, right. expel the barbarian, revere right. the emperor. Now, are we just kind of, in hindsight, going back and looking at these, you know, the kooky things about anti-Fordism and, and making too much out of those? Well, you know, the, the anti-foreign people, of course, uh, so when I say anti-foreign, I mean, you know, the ones who advocated immediate expulsion, right? Aizawa Seishisai was one of these people who kind of came around. He was, I think, at first an advocate of immediate expulsion, but then he realized that uh, Western science and technology could really benefit Japan in, in, in the long run. And he kind of came around to one of these advocates of deferred uh, expulsion, kind of like Sakuma Shozan. So, but it, yeah, you're right. Initially, he was one of those sort of knee-jerk, kick the people out. But the the people who advocated immediate expulsion, you know, they they resorted to violent tactics, right? And so they, I think, had a much higher profile as a result nationally. You know, we're talking about, you know, like these shishi, right? These ronin who assassinated Westerners, or they assassinated government officials like Inaosuke, right? And of course, Japan, especially in the 1860s, especially the city of Kyoto before the Meiji Restoration, was a very dangerous place because of these people. So I think this is one of the reasons why they get so much press, so to speak, in Western historiography. So in a way, to answer your question, I think, yeah, you're right that we've tended to focus more on those people rather than the cosmopolitan ones that I was talking about, like Sugita Genpaku or Ueda Akinari or, you know, some of these people who predate Perry, you know, by several decades, right? Uh, At least in Akinari's case. But I do think that's there. In fact, this is one of the reasons why, you know, after I wrote that book and I focused on the nativism angle, you know, the kind of, you know, we don't like foreigners in Japan, we want to kick them out. And it got me thinking about cosmopolitanism, actually. And so, you know, I wrote a paper on cosmopolitanism after the book had already come out and started finding it. And I suppose even personally, I, I was kind of surprised. I, you know, I think for people who work on, on Dangaku, probably already knew this about Sugita Genpaku. Um, I don't think it was really not in any kind of hidden, unknown text or anything like this. These are, these are the, you know, the kind of the standard things in Dangaku. And I found it and I was, and I was completely floored. I, I thought he would have been more, more like, you know, Sakuma Shozan later on, right, which is, uh, more practical about the acquisition of science and technology, and it turns out that he was talking about morality and ethics, and and but being cr- critical of Confucianism at the same time. So uh, I do think that more could be done. I think when looking at the cosmopolitanism of Tokugawa Japan, we don't usually think of Tokugawa Japan as being 
very cosmopolitan. We think of it as very, very anti-foreign, right? But, but I do think it's there. So we were talking about the, the Shishi and some of these intellectuals who are opening up a bit to the West, realizing that maybe it's this Wako and Yosai idea that we really need to adopt more pragmatically. Mm-hmm. But what about people in the countryside, right? I, I mean, think about work by Ann Walthall, Laura Ninzi, you know, looking at Matsuo Taseko or Kurosawa Tokiko, who are, are women in the countryside. And one of the things that was very striking in reading those books is, how much that anti-foreignism really pervaded all the way throughout the countryside. Do we see something different when we look at the commoners? Well, this might actually resonate with Ueda Akinari's comment about Norinaga being this kind of country quack, right? Akinari was an Osaka person for the most part. And, you know, he pointed out the fact that, you know, here is Norinaga who's in Issei, you know, in this little town. And no wonder he harbors such kind of crazy ideas. Well, you know, Akinati, maybe he was really onto something. Maybe there was more of a hospitable uh, environment for anti-foreign thinking in the countryside in the 19th century than there was in the cities. And you mentioned the, the shishi and assassinations of people like Yinaosuke in 1860, but I mean, right. the Richardson affair, I think 1866. Right. I was struck, I was looking into the documents on the opening of Tokyo in 1870, opening up of Tokyo to foreign residents. Uh-huh. They actually have to set a perimeter, the perimeter around Tokyo in which foreigners are allowed to perambulate. Okay. They have to send out all of these announcements out like, hey, there's going to be foreigners walking around. Nobody kill them because right, that right. would be really right. embarrassing for the country. Exactly. (laughs) Very quickly after the Meiji Restoration, there's, let's say, the cosmopolitan acceptance of the West, but also is certainly an opening to the West and an opening of attention to elsewhere. And one of those places I understand you've been working on recently is Okinawa. Can you talk about how Okinawa gets incorporated into this expanding Japanese nation state following the Meiji Restoration? Of course, it's not Okinawa yet, right? So it's, it's Ryukyu, right? The Ryukyu Kingdom. And uh, the Ryukyu Kingdom was basically, for all intents and purposes, was taken over by Japan. This would be the, the Satsuma Domain in 1609. Satsuma Domain got permission by the Edo Bakfu to invade you know, they made up all these reasons about, oh, they slighted us, they disrespected us, you know, these kinds of things. So the the Bakfu gave them permission. They went in and after a couple of days of fighting had essentially subdued, this is the, the, the main island of Okinawa. The Ryukyu Kingdom is a number of islands in addition to the main island of Okinawa, but the invasion was primarily in this, in the main island. Uh, and then uh, after that, they actually initiate a policy of expelling, actually, Japanese residents from Ryukyu. They, they, they wanted to keep Ryukyu foreign and basically direct the kingdom's trade with China. So Japan in those days, in 1609, was still, the Bakfu was still thinking about rejoining the Chinese tributary system. That all comes to an end about 1624. And so now there's no sort of state-to-state relationship with China, between China and Japan, uh, and there's no trade, right? So by taking over Okinawa in this way in 1609, the Ryukyu Kingdom, they can direct this trade and, and still acquire trade goods from China. And then as Ron Toby pointed out in his book, they can also acquire you know, information about what's going on in China via uh, their dominance of Ryukyu. But anyway, so Ryukyu is basically under Japanese domination from 1609 until the Okinawa Prefecture 
is created officially in 1879. And so the Meiji Restoration occurs, of course, in 1868. And so when that happens, the kingdom is still very much around, right? Uh, we still have this Ryukyu kingdom. Now the Bakfu has been overthrown. Now they're trying to decide what kind of government are we going to have. And eventually they decide on having more of kind of a European style, Western style government. Of course, that wasn't the case initially, but eventually that's what they decided on. And then they said, well, what are we going to do about Ryukyu? We've, we've got this kingdom, which is kind of under our dominance, but it's more under the dominance of Satsuma, this domain, which as of the creation of the, of the, well, the abolition of the domains, and then the creation of the prefectural system around 1870, 1871, they said, now it's, it's, we've got this kingdom, which is kind of attached to one of our prefectures. And this is really strange, right? This is, this is a strange system. It's a holdover from the old system, you know, the old, the old order in uh, East Asia. And we have to kind of rationalize this. And so, you know, there was talk about, you know, just, just absorbing Ryukyu altogether. However, because the Ryukyu kingdom was still a tributary of China in 1868, the Meiji Japanese decided that now that they're part of this, you know, sort of community of nations, right, in the world, and now they're, they're aware of things like international law and, and these kinds of things, they said, you know, outright seizure really is not in the cards because of the legal uh, ramifications of taking over a country that pays tribute to another country. And so this was kind of a thorn in their side. Uh, and then in 1871, Ryukyu and Se uh, they weren't sailors, but these are, uh, I think they were Ryukyuan government officials. They uh, were shipwrecked in Taiwan in December of 1871. Uh, Taiwan, of course, was nominally under the control of the, of the Qing, Qing dynasty China, right? And uh, a bunch of them, something like 56 or something like that, uh, of them were killed by the sort of the indigenous people who were there, right? And the Japanese protested to the Qing government. They said, look, your people killed our people, right? Like that, right? Those Bukuans, they're our people. The Chinese denied that. They said, we don't control those people. Ah, you don't really control those people. But you do recognize that, you know, the people you don't control killed our people, that kind of thing. And so uh, the Japanese then basically got legal dispensation, I suppose. And I think the U United States kind of had a hand in this in sending a punitive expedition to Taiwan to find the people responsible for the murder of their people and, and these kinds of things. And this is 1874. The, uh, the mission then ends, the troops are returned, and there's a negotiated settlement with the Qing dynasty uh, Chinese in 1875. And the Japanese interpreted that settlement to mean that the Qing had formally recognized Japan's claim over Ryukyu. The wording is actually quite ambiguous, right? This sort of diplomatic language. Uh, but certainly that's the way the Japanese interpreted it. And so that's when they put together their plan to finally uh, annex Ryukyu because of those, those legal implications were now sort of uh, cleared. Those obstacles were cleared. And that resulted in what's called the Ryukyu Shobun, which is 1879. Uh, and the kingdom was actually seized. The palace was occupied. The king was basically taken prisoner, uh, a number of officials of the imperial, royal court were taken prisoner, sent to Tokyo, and then Okinawa Prefecture was formally proclaimed. 
Of course, another well-known case of territorial acquisition in the early Meiji period is the case of Ezo, which gets colonized and turned in Hokkaido. Right. And as David Hal and Katsuyo Hirano have talked about, there's this whole process of ethnic negation in, in which the indigenous inhabitants have to be kind of remade into Japanese citizens. Does a similar process get carried out in the Ryukyus during the making of Okinawa? Oh, you know, that's a really good question. Uh, yes and no. Part of the justification, right, that the Meiji government used and sent to the Qing dynasty government, right, um, for the acquisition, the, the, the seizure of, of Yukyu, was this idea that the peoples were related, right? That Yukyuans and Japanese were related, related by culture, by history, but then also ethnically related. And of course, the Ryukyuan language um, is very closely related to the, the Japanese language as, as if there was a Japanese language at that time, or even a Ryukyuan language at that time. But anyway, the language that people there spoke and the languages that were spoken in Kyushu and in mainland Japan uh, were similar. And it was very easy for Japanese people to learn spoken Ryukyuan and, and the Ryukyuans had been speaking Japanese, you know, since the Japanese had come since 1609. So there was this sense that there, you have this sort of commonality, this common bond, which is why Ryukyu was made into a prefecture of Japan, actually, and not, not the way sort of Korea was treated later on, Taiwan was treated later on, you know, uh, Manchuria, these other sort of colonial acquisitions, and then Pacific Islands after World War I, you know, this was incorporated actually into mainland Japan. Something similar does happen in Hokkaido as well, but the rhetoric... I think was really different, right? It was, oh, the, 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 we are not really, we don't have that kind of commonality with the, the Ainu people like we do with the Ryukyuan people, at least not at that time. Today in Japan, I think now is when we see um, a similar kind of rhetoric uh, being produced about Hokkaido that we saw produced for Okinawa, you know, back in the 1870s and the 1880s. And, and that is coming out now. And it has to do with connections between the ancient Japanese and, you know, these uh, Emishi people, right, of northern Japan, the Emishi people who, who become the Ezo people, and they think that the Ezo people of, say, the Nara period, right, were the ancestors of the Ezo people of the Tokugawa period, who are the ancestors of the Ainu of today, right? So uh, I think you know, th those kind of linkages, which I think are so much more dependent on anthropology, right, for any kind of evidentiary basis, right, that this is really a, a, an ongoing contemporary thing, really. Whereas back in the Meiji period, with respect to Ryukyu, it was more cultural, linguistic, historical, and to a certain extent, ethnic. The first Ryukyuan king, if, if in fact this was a real person, this is uh, back in the 12th century, and there was a legend that his father was the very famous Japanese war warrior, Minamoto no Tametomo. And so the, uh, the line of kings, it, it depends on what history you're reading. Some, some argue that it was a broken line and that therefore the kings during the Edo period were not related to the king who was the son of uh, Minamoto no Tametomo. And then you have other ones who said, no, it really was an unbroken line like our imperial line, uh, and that therefore the kings of the Edo period are descendants 
of the first king who was the son of Minamoto no Tamitomo, and therefore they are imperial descendants themselves, and therefore we can tell them what to do, right? Our emperor can tell them what to do. And so the Okinawan royal histories pick up the narrative there and say that, you know, he made attempts to make his way back to mainland because he wants to go back to Kyoto to fight the Taida because the Taida have taken over the imperial court uh, and all these kinds of things. And uh, his ship is blown off course and he finds himself in Okinawa, Ryukyu, right? Okinawa. And there he, he marries a princess, right? He marries the daughter of a lord. She gets pregnant. And then he gets back on a ship because he says he has to fulfill his vow to, to fight against the Taida, successfully returns to Japan, and then fights against warriors who are sent from the imperial court to subdue him and then commit suicide in what some historians believe to be the first instance, suicide by seppuku, right? The first instance of seppuku in Japanese history. So the orthodox history of what happened is in the Hogen Monogatari, right? So the Hogen Monogatari is really a Muromachi uh, text. Um, and it was written down, you know, it was an oral tradition that was passed down from the Heian period, but then it was written down on the Muromachi period. It doesn't actually make reference to Ryukyu at all, actually, but it does acknowledge that he was um, exiled. So these Ryukyuan royal histories, which were produced in the 1600s, make the argument that, oh, yes, there's this period of time after he's exiled and nobody really knows what he's doing. Supposedly, according to the Hogen Monogatari, uh, he goes to the Onigashima, right? So the island of ogres, right? He go, Devil's Island or whatever. He goes there and they said, well, he really didn't go to an island of ogres. He actually came here. And which one, which one is more believable? That there are 10-foot giants? Because that's what he said, right? There are 10-foot giants who, and he fought against 10-foot giants or that he made his way down here and you know married one of our princesses and then made his way back to Japan. And so that's the, the ethnic tie. The ethnic tie, not, not people to people so much as imperial family to royal family, like that. I was commenting in another episode that when I first got to Japan in the early 2000s, there was a big boom in Okinawan culture. It seemed like there was a lot of popular bands and punk bands in particular from Okinawa, even this brand of jeans that had UQ on the back pocket. And so there was always this understanding that Okinawan culture was cool and somehow different. And what explains that? Do you have thoughts on that? Uh, you know, actually, that's a, that, I would say, is uh, there are connections, I think, to the Edo period. There were similar f things going on in the Edo. There were, there were Ryukyu booms or Okinawa booms even during the Edo period. And, you know, the, and people were similarly interested, um, intrigued, right, by these sort of commonalities that the Japanese people uh, supposedly have. These, this is for literate, literate Japanese people during the Edo period, right? So people who could read these books that were being written about the ties between Okinawa and, and Ryukyu and Japan. I think to the non-literate people, uh, their encounter with the Ryukyuans was through these processions, these parades, right? They, um, they had to uh, pay their respects to the daimyo, uh, the Satsuma daimyo in Kakushima, 
Uh, and they also had to pay their respects to the shogun, right, uh, in Edo. And so when they went on these processions, usually to thank the shogun for recognizing their king, right, or to offer their congratulations uh, when a new shogun came into office, right? So there were the, the two uh, distinct occasions. Uh, and they would, it was sort of like Sankin Kotai, right? The, they would start in Kagoshima and they would walk, right? They would walk to Edo and go through uh, towns and villages and people would see them, just regular people would see them. And this, this was probably what got people, really got people interested in the Bukuans is, is seeing these processions. And of course, you know, uh, a whole sort of cottage industry uh, developed, especially I think in the 18th century, where they would have programs and these programs would be distributed, would kind of explain, you know, who these people are, where they were from, uh, you know, give them some explanation about uh, the, the sort of symbolic meaning behind the, the way the procession was organized, identifying, you know, who usually it was royal princes uh, who accompanied these processions and so you know which one is the royal prince and who he was and and uh you know these kinds of things so i think in the edo period the the fact that you know there was so much interest that was being sort of developed with regard to Ryukyu was because it was officially foreign right this is why they were on parade it's because they were foreign right uh the koreans also had kind of their own processions that came to an end in the early 19th century but uh, and then, of course, the Dutch made their famous uh, procession, you know, whatever it was. You know, the Dutch captain had to pay his respects to the, to the shogun. But the very fact that these people were even doing it was, was, a, was, was because they were foreign. Fast forward to uh, contemporary Japan, right? Okinawa is officially not foreign, right? Um, but yet um, people really latch on to, unlike the Edo period, where they were latching on to commonalities, now they're really latching on to differences, right? Differences, even though they're supposed to be, you know, another prefecture, uh, just like any other prefecture, but yet they speak a supposed dialect, right? A hogan of Japanese, which is absolutely unintelligible, uh, especially given standard spoken Japanese um, today. Um, so there's that, there's the, you know, uh, the, the very strong Chinese cultural influence in Okinawa. This is something the Okinawans themselves like to tout as a kind of mark of difference from mainland Japanese. Okinawans have traditionally incorporated pork into their cooking. And this is something that, you know, especially in the early modern period, Japanese people did not eat pork, right? Maybe, maybe you could get some etakawata who maybe ate pork, but for the most part, um, the Japanese didn't really raise pigs, right? Especially for food, uh, but the Okinawans did. And uh, this kind of, uh, um, pig husbandry, they got it from the Chinese. And so this is another way that uh, people, you know, they say, oh, today in Japan, you know, these people, they're, they're similar to us, but yet, you know, they, they are different, but different in these, in these profound ways, but yet this is a part of our country. And, uh, and so it's kind of interesting for that reason, I would say. With this being the Meiji at 150 podcast, we've come across a number of 150s, uh, another one being the, the 150th anniversary of the incorporation of Hokkaido in 1869, for example. But I also understand this is the 150th anniversary of the first Japanese immigrants to Hawaii. Right. Yeah, actually, we passed it. They arrived June 19th, 1868. So the, the official anniversary day was last month. Uh, yeah, 
what's interesting is these are the first group migrants, right? So these were these were people who were recruited to work, right, abroad. And there were Japanese people, of course, who've been abroad for centuries, usually in some kind of merchant trade capacity. You also have castaways, right? So it's not that there weren't any Japanese people prior to 1868 living abroad, but these are the first ones who were actually sent specifically for the purpose of working abroad. And they were recruited to come here to Hawaii. And they are connected to the Meiji Restoration, but they're connected in a very interesting way. Um, they were actually recruited in the fall of 1867 before the Meiji Restoration. And there was a ban on overseas travel that was imposed by the Tokugawa Bakufu in the 1630s. Uh, and even though the Americans you know, got their treaty with the uh, Japanese in 1854 and then the other powers um, got their treaties after that, um, and foreigners actually, Westerners, I should say, actually started taking up residence in Japan in the 18, after, say, 1856. Japanese were still not allowed to go abroad. There were a couple of exceptions to that. The famous 1860 expedition that Fukuzawa Yukichi was on um, that went to Washington, D.C., right? Uh, which, by the way, stopped in Hawaii as well. But anyway, that prohibition was lifted in 1866. And so... Once that's lifted, now Japanese people can go abroad if they could afford it, right? Um, and so the Kingdom of Hawaii, for various reasons, they needed foreign workers uh, because of, of the steep population decline in the islands at that time. And so they hired an American merchant in Yokohama to recruit a group of Japanese workers um, to come to Hawaii. And so they were recruited in the uh, early months of 1868 right around the time the Meiji Restoration was declared. But remember, the, the Meiji Restoration, they're declaring the restoration of imperial power, but there's still people who support the Bakufu, right, at that time. And so they're going to fight it out over the course of 1868, actually into 1869. And so it's not a quick changeover, is the point. So anyway, uh, so these people, they recruited in, in Yokohama and three days before their scheduled departure. So they have all their papers, all their paperwork is in order, you know, signed by the Bakfu, right? And uh, the restoration forces reach Yokohama in, uh, this is around May 10th or so of 1868. And the shogun's people are basically run out of Yokohama. Well, when that happens, the American recruiter for these Japanese workers he then, you know, thinking that this would, would win him points, right, with the new government, he then takes his paperwork and he presents it to a new magistrate for the, you know, Meiji government and says, oh, can you issue me new papers? And they say no. <laughs> they said, no, these, these papers were issued by, that, by the old regime and we're in the new regime and we care more about our people than they did and uh, no. And so he, he appealed over the course of, uh, you know, uh, a week and a half, two weeks. He filed seven appeals uh, with the magistrate. They were all turned down. And so he ended up smuggling the Japanese migrants. So there were 151 of them. Uh, he smuggled them out under the cover of darkness on, I think it was May 16th or so, something like that. And they left Japan illegally, which of course meant that uh, as far as the Meiji government was concerned, their presence in Hawaii was illegal. And this was one of the things that had to be resolved um, if there was going to be amicable relations between the Kingdom of Hawaii and uh, the Meiji government. So a mission is dispatched to 
uh, investigate the conditions of these of these workers, and this is in December of 1869. And the uh, the Ma there were two Meiji government officials uh, who came, and they decided that um, you know things weren't um, all that bad. The the kingdom acknowledged that you know that there were some uh, you know less than savory aspects to the recruitment of these Japanese workers. I don't think the kingdom ever admitted that what they did was illegal. I think the Japanese pressed them very hard to admit that it was illegal. And I think the kingdom didn't want to admit that it was legal because then they thought they'd be on the hook for an indemnity or, or something like that. An agreement was signed between the kingdom of Hawaii and the Meiji government in January, 1870. And then they said, oh, okay, now we officially recognize the presence of our people in your country. A group of about 40 Japanese workers decided that they didn't really like living in Hawaii. And so they returned, they were allowed to return to Japan at that point. So 40 of the, of the original 151, but the rest stayed to finish their three-year um, contracts, which were up in the summer of 1871. Um, and then at that point, a group returned to Japan, I think it's about a dozen, and then about half of the remaining go on to the US mainland. And from there, I, I don't really know what happens to them. And then about 40 to 50 um, stay behind in Hawaii to become the first sort of settled Japanese immigrants in Hawaii. And then uh, Japanese immigration to Hawaii then resumes in 1885 because of the agreement that was signed between the kingdom and the Meiji government in 1870. So because that was resolved, then um, immigration is allowed to resume, but it, it takes a while. Uh, and then immigration between Japan and Hawaii is 1885 until about 1905 uh, because of the gentleman's agreement right of 1905. And then the, the Japanese then said, we're not gonna send any more of our people to the United States. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.